Bibles this morning while they're headed out and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 once more. Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to say something as you're turning there. Uh, you can look around and tell probably half our congregation, it seems like, is not here. And I think that's largely due to illness. And so uh, let me just encourage you, one of the things as a community of believers that we ought to be thinking about is just letting people know that we, we miss them, not because we're trying to kind of get them back into church and we want to make sure that they know they should be here, but because we're genuinely concerned about them and we care for their well-being. And so let me just encourage you, one, if you see somebody, if you won't see them, if you don't see someone here, uh, let me just encourage you, first of all, pray for them this week. They, they probably have the flu or a stomach virus. It seems like those are the two things going around. Secondly, maybe just reach out to them and say, hey, I missed you. We, we care about you. Are you okay? And uh, I'm praying for you. And, and that's such an encouragement. And we need to be doing that. We try to do that as pastors. We don't always do it faithfully. Uh, but, but really, we all ought to be doing that as, as a congregation. So with that kind of said, now let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. And I've got to admit, this morning, and I'm going to say this, it maybe sounds weird, this morning I wasn't ready to preach, uh, not in terms of preparation. I, I've got the notes and I'm ready to go as far as that goes. But this morning as I was praying, I just my heart was cold. It was not warmed by the fire of God's truth. And I prayed this morning that God would fill me with His Spirit, that I would be filled with His praise, that I would... Uh, sense and experience the, the presence of God in, in a powerful way. And uh, as we began to sing this morning, I don't think there, these are songs that we've sung before, uh, I, I just sensed the Lord encouraging me and, and warming my heart to uh, His presence and to the realities that, that we find in, in His Word. And so I'm thankful for that this morning. And I think that happens oftentimes as we as we praise the Lord, right? As we begin to open our mouth and actually sing praises to Him. So, uh, hopefully now I'm ready to preach. But Ephesians chapter 5, let's start back at verse 15. We're just going to focus on verse 21 this morning. But let's get the context in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember, just by way of setting context, if you were here last week, that's the main command. Don't be controlled by alcoholic beverages. Don't be controlled by wine, because that produces, being filled with wine, produces all kinds of debauched, wicked reckless, destructive behavior. So don't be controlled or influenced by wine, but on the flip side of that, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what he says. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit in the same way or in an analogous way, at least, to the way that wine controls us, that alcohol controls us when we drink too much. Uh, the Spirit has a controlling influence in our lives when we're filled with the Spirit. So don't be filled with wine. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's certain behaviors that are produced when you're filled with
the Spirit. So that's what we see. If you're filled with wine, your behavior is debauched. If you're filled with the Spirit, what happens? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what we want to focus on this morning, that's what we looked at last week, is this idea of praise. But the final, we said there are five participles that, that explain they're, they're the result of being filled with the Spirit, which we saw singing and making melody, addressing one another, giving thanks. Uh, and now this last one is this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you are filled with the Spirit, one of the resulting behaviors that will be manifested in your life is that you will submit to one another. Now there's a debatable question here because it's a little bit strange isn't it, to think about submitting to one another. Typically we think of authority and we submit to authority. What does this mean to submit to one another? Does this mean something? Uh, there's a, a debatable sort of interpretation. Does this mean mutual submission that all of us are to be submitting to each other in, in the context of the local church? Or is this just sort of an introductory remark, submitting to one another, and then you see in chapter 6 that he begins to give specifics. Children, uh, or, or in verse 5 there, uh, chapter 5 rather, verse 22, he talks about wives submitting to the leadership of their husbands. Chapter 6, he talks about children submitting to their parents. Later, he's going to be talking about servants submitting to their masters. So is he just saying, hey, the, the Lord will give you a spirit of submissiveness, and if you are in that role of submission, then you submit to that authority? Or does he mean all of us should be submitting to each other? Now, I, I think this is talking about mutual submission. He's going to give some tangible expressions or some specific ways that we submit to one another, some, some specific roles of authority uh, in society and in the church that we submit to one another on. But I think, first of all, he's just establishing that as believers, we ought to have a general spirit of submission toward one another. Now, let me just kind of help unpack a little more of the, the difficulty in this text because uh, I think we need to wrestle with this as, as believers. We believe the Bible, right? We want to live faithfully to the Word of God and we recognize that sometimes our culture kind of runs against the Word of God. Not sometimes, really almost all the time. Uh, the direction of our culture is in a, is in a head-on collision course with what the Word of God teaches. Okay, And one of the ways is this idea of Submission. We live in a world where, in, in a culture where there's a radical individualism. Our culture is self-centered. Uh, we, we think, I think most people do, that fulfillment and meaning in life are to be found as you assert yourself. Right? Not as you submit. Don't submit to anyone. Right? Submission is, is sort of really thought negatively at you assert yourself. You be who you are. You demand your rights and pursue your ambitions and desires above everything else. Forget what other people want. You assert yourself. Nothing else matters in our culture of radical individualism 
materialism as much as personal fulfillment and happiness. Like your personal dream, your personal goals, your personal fulfillment is what your life is, is all about. It's all about the self. It's the me generation that we live in. Self-expression and self-assertiveness are the values, they are the virtues of our culture, right? Used to be humility was a virtue, right? That was a good thing. That was a virtue. No, no. In our culture, self-expression and self-assertiveness are virtues. That's what's good. Forget everybody else. Don't worry what anybody else thinks or what anybody else wants you to do or what anyone else expects of you. You assert yourself. You find your own personal fulfillment. That's, that's virtuous. Lay everybody else aside and pursue what you want. Going hand in hand with this current then is, is sort of a push toward the abolition of authority. All kinds of authority structures and submission because here's the reality. You cannot live this sort of self-assertive, self-expressive lifestyle that is so virtuous if you have people who are over you telling you the way that you ought to live or telling you certain things you should or shouldn't do and you're expected to submit to them. You can't be self-expressive uh, to the degree that you really ought to be as long as uh, there are these authorities in your life. So we want to push against those authorities. We want to denigrate and downplay authority and along with that, right, submission. Submission is not a good thing. And so uh, many people kind of want to push toward an, what we would call an egalitarian society, which is, is not just simply equal in the sense of rights, right? We do believe that, that we are all created in the image of God. There are certain inalienable rights, as our Constitution says, and I think rightly so. Our Constitution is not our authority, but right, the Word of God is. Uh, but I think it's true. Uh, and, and there is sort of a, an equality in terms of rights, like everybody ought to have equal rights, but, but the egalitarianism that is pushed for is not just an equal rights, it's sort of a, uh, an equal playing field as if there are no authorities, like when there are no submission, there are no roles of authority, and nobody's submitting to that authority. We're all completely equal in the roles that we have, and that, I think, is problematic from a biblical standpoint. In this culture, many don't like the fact that the Bible recognizes that there are roles of authority in the church. There are roles of authority in the home. There are roles of authority in society. And we as Bible believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to humbly submit to those authorities. Right? There are people who think that's crazy. That's crazy. There should be no roles of authority in the home, like husbands leading their wives. That's, that's like a patriarchal kind of something that's left over from the Middle Ages, and we need to get rid of that. Uh, there's no roles of authority in the church, right? We, we're all followers of Christ. We're all on equal footing. And so that's the kind of men mentality that is going on. Well, some use this text here. Chapter uh, 5, verse 21, submitting to one another to say, see there, Paul is sort of establishing, since we all submit to each other, he's really kind of saying there really is no authority. You submit to me and I submit to you. This is an egalitarian.
There's no roles of authority. We just all submit to one another. And so uh, that's kind of what is, is, is put out there. Others then who want to react against that kind of, I think, wrong view, uh, want to safeguard what the Bible teaches uh, about uh, the roles of authority that are like right in the next verse, right? The next verse, Paul starts talking about husbands leading their wives and wives submitting their husbands and, and children obeying their parents, right? And, and all over the Bible says that we as citizens are to submit to the governing authorities. Like it's all over, but we'll get to that. But people react against that kind of saying that Paul is creating an egalitarian society uh, and an egalitarian uh, community within the church. And they say, no, 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 he's just talking, he, this is sort of an introductory remark, and he's going to tell who it is that is going to submit. So wives are to submit to their husbands, children are to submit to their parents, uh, and, and uh, servants are to submit to their masters, and, and so on. And so he's, there's only specific people that he's talking about. This is not a call for mutual submission in the church. And so you see the reaction, you see the two polarizing sides to that. What I think this text is calling us to is that it is calling us to mutual submission. We are all to submit to each other, although that plays itself out in varied ways, but that does not mean that there are not specific roles of authority to which we are to submit. Uh, and, and I think we're, we want to unpack that. So why do I think this is a call for mutual submission? Well, one is, first of all, is, uh, I'll give you several reasons. One is just the flow of the text, right? So we've already seen that. You're filled with the Spirit, and if you're filled with the Spirit, here are five things uh, that are results of being filled with the Spirit. And so I think every Spirit-filled filled person is going to be a person who is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, who is singing, who is making melody, who is giving thanks, and who is submitting to one another. Like it's just the result of being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit, if He is in you, and if He is filling you, and if you are yielding yourself to the Spirit, you're going to be a person who is submissive, a person who submits to one another. So that's just the flow of the text. Now, I, I grant that this is kind of a hinge passage. So, so he does say submitting to one another, and then he gives some specific areas in which that submission manifests itself. But I think, first of all, he's just saying there's a general call for us to submit to one another. Second, second, the second reason I think this is a call for mutual submission, all of us, pastors, deacons, all of us submitting to one another, is because that fits with all kinds of other New Testament commands. Right? It fits with everything that we find in the New Testament, including the commands of Jesus Christ and his own example. So let's just look at a few really quickly. We're actually going to come back to these, uh, but, but to kind of dig in them a little bit more. But first, I just want us to see that this idea of submitting to one another is something that we find all over the New Testament. If you're a New Testament Christian, this is to be the way that you live in relationship to other Believers. So the first one is Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything that is, strictly speaking, 
self-serving, like you're doing it for yourself, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I think that's submitting to one another. Like, I'm not looking out for my own interests. That's what we all do. And I don't want to preach this verse yet. I just want to dip our feet in it because we're going to come back to it. But that's what we all do, right? We all look out for our own interest. But when you submit to one another, you look out for the interest of others. You come to this issue not thinking, what's my interest here? What do I got to watch out for? What, what do I have to protect so that I get what's mine? Now, when you submit to one another, you, you're looking out for the interests of others. You're counting others as more significant than yourself. Galatians 5.13 is another thing that matches up with this another command. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, if you're fighting over what you want, right? Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So serving one another, in my mind, fits very nicely with submitting to one another. Right? You're submitting to the needs of others and you're, you're looking for ways to serve each other. Again, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. So, so the, the King James says here, prefer one another. Right? That's another way that we submit to one another. I'm not looking for me to be honored. I'm not looking for me to have a place of preeminence. Instead, I'm looking for ways to honor you. Right? That, that is uh, submitting to one another. Jesus taught this, right? Jesus called them, called his disciples. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They've got authority, and they use that authority for their own ends. When they, when they are given authority, they're not thinking, how can I use this authority to help those that I'm ruling over? No, they lord it over them. They use that authority for their own ends. The, the, those who are considered Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And listen to this, but it shall not be so among you. It's not going to be that way. For those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, for those who are part of the church, it's not going to work that way. You're not going to get authority and power and, and, and a place of preeminence and then use it for self-serving ways. You're not going to use it for yourself. Instead, what are you to do? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Whoever's given a position of authority should actually use that authority as a, as a service and a way to serve those who are under them. If you want to be great, become a slave. If you want to be great in the kingdom of Christ, be a slave to other people. Our world doesn't think that way, but we're called to submit to one another, and the Spirit of God produces that kind of submission. If you're filled with the Spirit, you stop being self-serving. You stop thinking about, I want honor, I want power, I want it my way, 
and you start thinking, how can I serve others? How can I honor other people? How can I serve other people? That's what we're called to do. Jesus, in, in, in Luke, uh, we see Jesus' example of this. Uh, he, he concludes in, in Luke, in that same passage, he says, I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is just saying, follow my example. Be subject to one another. Submit to one another. I'm, I'm among you. I'm the son of God. I'm the eternal word of God. I'm the one who spoke this creation into existence. And yet, as we are here among you, as I'm walking among you, I'm one who serves. And so you be that way. We think of Jesus at the, the Last Supper. And the book of John records, what does Jesus do? He's going to the cross. He's going to lay down his life as an atonement for our sins. He, even to that very point, I, I love the way John puts it, right? Having loved his own, he loved them till the end, right? He didn't say, okay, guys, I know I've really served you. This whole ministry has been really me serving you. But now I'm getting ready to go to the cross. So let's just, Peter, could you stop talking about yourself? You all stop thinking about yourself and just focus on me for a minute. I'm getting ready to be arrested. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. So could you all just turn your attention to me for a minute? That's not what he does. Even in that moment, he, he girds himself and he washes their feet. One last act of service. Jesus submitted himself. Make no mistake about it. He was in a place of authority. He was the leader among the disciples. He, he was their master and their Lord. And yet, he served them. And he served them all the way to the end. And so, this call for mutual submission, I think, it, I think it is a call for mutual submission. And I think it fits beautifully with the rest of what we see in the New Testament. This isn't like there's just this one passage that strangely tells us to submit to one another. Well, that doesn't make sense. Let's get rid of it. No, it fits flawlessly and seamlessly with everything else that we find in the New Testament. Third is, the third reason I think it's a call for mutual submission is this. It, it fits with what the older interpreters. Sometimes when you get in a debate, uh, people sort of read the text of Scripture through that debate, they let that debate sort of uh, influence the way that they interpret the text. And one of the things that you can do is go back and read what older interpreters said. And, and a lot of times but when they weren't influenced by that debate, uh, they, they can help you see clearly. So one of the reformers said this about this mutual submission, about 521, our text. He said, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man, no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection, or the word submission. And where love reigns, mutual service will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors. It doesn't matter, he says here, if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're a governor. In the body of Christ... Like if there were a president here, a congressman, a senator, if there was some kind of great leader out there in the body of Christ, there's no exception. You are to submit to one another. So he says, I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is
is held for the service of the community. It is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to one another in their turn. Matthew Henry says, this: there is a mutual submission that Christians owe to one another, condescending to bear one another's burdens, not advancing themselves above others, nor domineering over one another, and giving laws to one another. The fourth reason I think this is a mutual submission is this. Mutual submission, mutual submission does not obliterate roles of authority. That's the fear here for some that want to say it's not mutual submission. They say if you say everyone submits to each other, then there's no authority, right? We all just, we create this egalitarian uh, society and there's no roles of authority. But, but I don't think that's what it does. In fact, in fact, I think that mutual submission actually strengthens the roles of authority, those God-ordained roles of authority, rather than, than obliterate them. And, and I'll show you what I mean. I think it does that in two ways. First of all, let me just say it's clear that Paul does not intend by this command of mutual submission, he does not intend to obliterate or to get rid of any roles of authority. How do we know that? Because as I already said, in the very next verse, he calls wives to be submissive to the leadership of their husband. If that rubs you the wrong way, come back and we're going to talk more about what that means and what the role of the husband is and the great responsibility upon husbands. But clearly he's not thinking here, well, let me just say there is no submission. All of us just submit to each other and, and there's no roles of authority because he just goes right in to talking about some specific roles of authority. So, so that's not what is in his mind. Sometimes we need to give the, the writers of the New Testament some credit. Like they actually had a brain. He's not contradicting himself in the very next verse. Okay? But let me show you there are two ways that mutual submission actually strengthens those roles of authority. First of all, mutual submission creates people. This command to mutual submission actually creates people who know how to submit to authority. So when we learn in the body of Christ to, to be thinking about others, to be saying, you know, this is my will, this is what I desire, but I'm going to kind of actually yield my will to the will of someone else or to a, a group of other people. I'm going to submit to them. When, when we learn how to do that in the body of Christ toward each other all the time, it, it actually strengthens those roles of authority when God says, hey, this person's an authority, the, the governing authorities, and you need to submit to them. It, it creates people who already know how to submit. Right? We, we know how to submit to those God-ordained authorities when we see them. When people embrace a, a general spirit of submissiveness toward, toward all, it's easier for them to submit to specific God-ordained authority. This, this command to mutual submission actually creates an environment where authority is honored, not where it's denigrated or, or put down. Secondly, this command strengthens the roles of authority because it creates an environment in which authority is good. Okay? Let's stop and think about this. Why is it in our day and time that people are pushing against these roles of authority? Why are women saying, hey, we don't want to be submissive to our husbands. That's like an ancient, archaic way of thinking and we should not do that. That's, that's bad. Why is it that people are pushing against our governing authorities? Like, we don't want to be subject to these people. Why is it that all over in our society, people don't
want authority. Well, one of the reasons is because they're sinners. But, but a second reason uh, is because experientially, leadership and authority has been so abused. So you look all over the place and you see wives who have been abused uh, physically and in other ways by their husbands. And so people react against that and they say, look at that authority, that, that, that leader, leadership and this call for submission. This creates an environment in, in, in which abuse can happen. So we need to just get rid of authority, right? We need to just get rid of this idea of, of submission, Leaders and husbands and parents and governing officials and employers have all used their authority to their own advantage and at the expense of those who are under their authority. And after years and years and decades and, and centuries of that happening, people are finally saying, we need to just get rid of authority. It's bad. It's abusive. But what we need to understand is those who come from a biblical uh, worldview and let the Bible shape our, our way that we think. Authority doesn't create abusers. And a lack of submission is actually the problem. You see, the answer to abusive leadership, to abusive authority, is not getting rid of authority. The, the answer to it is actually more submission. Let me show you what, what I mean by that. Authority isn't the problem. Getting rid of authority isn't the solution. Listen, the reason people who are in places of authority do those things, the, the reason that husbands are abusive, the reason that sometimes pastors in the, in the context of a church are abusive of their authority, the reason that governing authorities are sometimes abusive, the, the, the problem is not the authority. The problem is that those people are themselves not submissive, right? The, the problem is... For a husband who is abusing his authority, we don't want to just say, hey, let's get rid of leadership roles in the family. What we need to understand, if you want to get rid of that kind of abuse, that husband needs to submit to God-ordained authority, right? The, the problem about with a husband who would abuse his spouse or abuse his family is that he's not submitting to God. And he's not submitting to the rules uh, of the governing officials, like, if you want husbands to stop being abusive, don't strip them of any kind of leadership role in the family. If you want them to stop being uh, to stop being abusive, then what needs to happen is they need to submit to God. And they need to submit to the, the God-instituted authority of governing officials, right? If, if men who are in places of leadership would submit to the law of God and to the law of man, they wouldn't be abusive. Right? So the answer to abusive authority is not getting rid of all authority. The answer is actually more submission. Think about this. Let's, let's think of a few examples here. First of all, when, when authority is abused, what do you do? The, the answer is not getting rid of authority. The, the answer is actually good authority. So if someone uh, is abusive, if a husband is abusive of his wife, what do you do? You call the authorities, right? There's another authority, right? And you call that authority to bring this person who is abusing his authority into line. Like he needs to be dealt with. So the answer to that is not just getting rid of authority. The, the answer is a higher authority. When a policeman is corrupt and he abuses his authority, what's the solution? 
some higher level of authority that will bring him into subjection. When a government official, congressman or senator or president is abusing his authority, the answer is some other authority that can bring him into su submission, right? The solution to bad authority is not no authority. The solution to bad authority is actually good authority. So what's, what's the problem with an abusive husband? We, we've already seen this. The problem is that he's not submissive. He doesn't submit to God, uh, the law of God, or the law of man. Just think about this. Would, would the world be better? Would the world be better if there were no authority? I don't think so. If, if you think by getting rid of authority and positions of power, we can actually get rid of tyrants, that's not true. When you, when you get rid of authority, you, you don't get rid of tyrants. You just make like 7 million tyrants, 7 billion tyrants, because we're all a law unto ourselves. The answer to that is when people come to submit to the authority of God. That is the answer to abusive authority. Finally, a, a person who is, uh, has a general spirit of submission, when he or she gets into a place of authority, is actually going to use that authority in a good way. So if you learn, just in general, to submit to one another, to care for one another, to love one another, I'm, I'm thinking about your needs and your interests, and I'm going to serve you, and then when you get into that place of authority, you maintain that mindset, even your use of authority will be to serve those who are under you. So, this call to mutual submission doesn't get rid of authority. Instead, it strengthens it because it teaches us to submit to authority, but then it also makes authority good. With the time that we have left, then what, what I want us to do is just see what are some of the characteristics of this mutual submission. What are the characteristics of this mutual submission? First of all, uh, the, the, the whole idea is sort of a reciprocal deference, one, one person. That this command is meant to create an environment within the body of Christ where we're not grabbing for power, where we're not always trying to assert our interests first, where we're, we're not always trying to make sure that everything's kind of tilted our way a little bit. This command to mutual submission means that I'm putting, I'm putting your needs and your interest and, and your good and your honor sort of as the highest priority in, in my priority list. And in the body of Christ, that's the way it should be. You, you think, that sounds crazy. Nobody lives that way. You're exactly right. That's why we need the Spirit of God in us to create that kind of mindset. It's only by the Spirit of God that we can be these kind of people. But first of all, listen to this. Mutual submission means I am quick to honor others instead of seeking my own honor. Again, Romans 12 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Prefer one another. Like, I'm, I'm looking for you to be honored. I'm walking into this room not thinking, man, I want everybody to recognize me. I want me to be honored. I want my desires. I want, I want things my way. Instead, I'm looking to honor you. Have the mentality that you step in first to show honor 
to someone. And this mindset comes from humility, which again, in our day, is not something that is thought well of, right? Again, we, we think self-assertiveness, self-expression is what it's all about. But, but listen to what Paul says later in that chapter in Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So lower yourself. Like, I'm not here to be honored and be up top and out front. It's not all about me. Instead, I'm not going to be haughty. I'm going to lower myself down. And, and I'm going to seek to honor you. That's what this means to submit to one another. Secondly, mutual submission means that we will count others as more significant than ourselves and prioritize their interest over and above ours. Again, Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but on the interest of others. Stop and think about that. Do we ever do that? How often are you going into a scenario where you're thinking, what is that brother or sister's interest in this? Like, what is their concern here? And really, I'm going to make that my priority. But when, we, when we're talking about things and we're making plans or we're in a business meeting, I think all of us typically are thinking, what are my interests? Where, where do my interests lie in this discussion? And what can I do to tilt things toward my interests? In, in our marriages, how often are we thinking, oh, my wife is going to want to do this, but, but my interest is this, this is what I want. And I'm going to try to argue, and I'm going to try to assert my opinion so that I will get my interest. No, in, in the body of Christ, and in Christian marriages, and Christian relationships, we ought to be thinking, what's the interest of the, of the other person? And guess what? Guess what? It's not just that we need to know what their interest is. We need to prioritize their interest above ours. That's what we're called to do. So, so it's not just that, yeah, I know what she wants, and... Maybe sometimes I'll give in to that. No, no, no. This is what my wife desires. This, this is what the other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are wanting to do. I'm going to prioritize there. I, I kind of wanted to do something else. But let me, let me just say their interests are more important than my interests. You want to talk about a radical community. You want to talk about a, a, a kind of place that stands out, as Jesus said, a city set on a hill, a, a light that cannot be hidden. If the church were to be that way, if Christian marriages were to be that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, relationship, uh, they certainly would shine in this me generation. Mutual submission means we'll count others as more significant. That, does the Bible really say that? I'm supposed to count other people as more significant than myself? That's exactly what it says, brothers and sisters. And that's exactly the, what we ought to be striving for in our marriages and in the church body. We ought to be, we ought to be counting them as more important than ourselves. Like that is radical. But it's what we're called to do. Mutual submission means instead of demanding our rights, we, we serve others passage in Galatians 5 that I read earlier. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In Christ you are free, but you don't take that freedom to sort of assert what you want and to live the way you want. Instead, use that freedom to love and serve one another. That's what he tells us to do in Galatians 3, 
or 5.13. And you look around, and, and that passage, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. How often have we seen that in church bodies? In, in the body of Christ, how often do we see members biting and devouring one another? Uh, not, not literally, right? But, but with the kind of fighting that goes on in the church. And the world is out there saying, look, the church is just full of splits and anger and fighting. It's not to be that way in the body of Christ. Jesus said, among you, it shouldn't be that way. We ought to be using our freedom to serve one another. Like, I'm free in Christ, but, but I'm, I'm, I want to love you, and I want to serve you. That's what we're called to do. Finally, mutual submission means that even authority is used to serve. I think... Uh, what we see in the life of Christ, clearly, as I've already said, that Christ was an authority. He was their Lord and Master. But the way that Christ used authority has forever shaped authority in, in the body of Christ among believers. Right? And, and I want to read this passage one more time from Matthew 20, verse 25. He, he called the disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Like they use their authority in self-interested ways. But he says, it will not be so among you. Now what he doesn't say there is, there will be no one in authority in the church. He does not create some kind of egalitarian structure. It's not going to be so among you, there will be no leaders. You are all on equal footing. No, no, no. That's not what he calls us to. There, there is certainly leadership in, in the body of Christ. Right? There is leadership in the family. There's leadership and authority in society. But listen to what he says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If, there's, if there is someone who's great, if there is someone who's in a place of authority, if there is someone who's in a role of leadership, really they should think of themselves as a servant rather than using this authority to lord it over the people. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I think this interpretation of that passage is even clearer in the, the, the context in Luke. He says in Luke, this is the way that, the Luke, that uh, Luke records it. it. But not so with you. Same thing. Gentile rulers lorded over them, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So as we think about leadership, this call to mutual submission means that even if you are a leader, and there are leaders, and there are roles of authority, husbands, you are called to lead your family, okay? Uh, pastors, we're called to lead the, the church. Governing officials in society are called to lead in the community, in society, right? There are roles of leadership, but if you find yourself in one of those places of leadership, the leader should be as one who serves. You should be using your authority, your leadership, not to advantage yourself, not for your own self-interest, but for the best and for the good of those that you are leading. And I think we see in Christ someone who does exactly that. And there's one more little phrase as we close this morning at the end of this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We do this out of the fear of Christ. 
I think this could mean out of fear of judgment, but as believers, I, I don't think that's what it's calling us to. I think it means out of reverence, out of respect, out of honor for Christ. Why do we submit to one another? Because we're followers of Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And that's what he did. And because he lived that way, he poured himself out. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who created this world and spoke it into, into being by his word, the one who was sustaining and upholding this creation even while he was in the cradle, that one submitted himself to the needs of others. And because he did that, out of reverence for him, if you love him, if you honor him, if you respect him, if you're a follower of him, then you're going to lay down your life for others. That's what we're called to do. Pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for good authority. God, we know that there is no authority but the authority that comes from you. It's all yours. Yours is the power and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every authority that exists does so in a subservient way to you. It's, it's your authority that you have delegated to them and to us in various ways. God, we pray as those who use that authority that you would help us to do it wisely. We, we pray, oh Lord, that you would help us and give us a spirit of submission to one another. We pray that you would help us be like Christ, that, that we would not use our position and our status to advantage ourselves, but that we might pour ourselves out for one another. God, I pray for Union Baptist Church. We exist to grow disciples of Jesus Christ in community, and the kind of community that it is to be is this kind of selfless community. God, help us at Union Baptist Church to, to demonstrate that and to be that kind of light.